So he went to the hotel porter, got the address of a massage parlor, went and knocked on the door, and a little Thai girl came and said, what can I do for you? He said, like a massage. She said, certainly, sir. He said, how much will it be? She said, $1,000. Oh, he said, I can't afford $1,000. $200 at most I can afford. She said, sorry, $1,000 our price. You better go somewhere else. Well, he didn't bother. He went window shopping, went to pick his wife up at the appointed time. They were walking back to the hotel, went down the street, came this Thai girl. Looked at his wife, said, there, well, I'll see what you get for $200. <laughs> I was in India in the winter for two of the test matches. It's a very strange country. Do you know, I still don't know whether they drive on the left or the right. <laughs> they steer very well, even round the cows lying in the middle of the road, but it's a very frightening place. And, of course, the food, very tricky. But they've got a new dish, especially for Englishmen. It's called boycott curry. You still get the runs, but more slowly. <laughs> Well, now, the theme of this evening is really to tell you how lucky I've been in life and how much fun I've had. And I start off by saying how lucky I am to have had a wonderful family. Mother and father, sister, two brothers, very close we've always been. And that was great. My wife has put up with me now for 45 years and one day, which is very, very sweet of her. And we had five, and still have five lovely children, and they produced seven grandchildren. And it is, quite seriously, very important. If you're doing a job like mine, rushing around, doing all these things, meeting a lot of people, so to be able to go back to a happy home. So that's my luck number one. I was quite lucky in my education, because I was sent to the oldest preparatory school in England, it was at the moment. The food matched the age of the school, but it was um, in Eastbourne, Temple Grove, it was called. And I only remember two things about it, really. The matron had a club foot, which is unusual. <laughs> but, you know, the headmaster had a glass eye, and it was a very, it was a very well-disguised glass eye. And I said to someone, how do you know it's a glass eye? Oh, he said it came out in the conversation. <laughs> I then went to Eton, which, again, I'm lucky because it's the best trades union in Great Britain because there's so many old attorneys around the place, you know, you meet them and it helps. And I've got lots of happy memories there. My late friend, William Douglas, whom the playwright, did something which amused me. Examination paper, he was sitting at his desk and they brought the questions. And one of the questions was, write as briefly as you can on the future of one of the two following subjects. The first was socialism, the second one was coal. So he thought for a moment, he got his pen, he wrote one word, smoke. And he got 10 out of 10, which wasn't bad. <laughs> the other one, we used to go to the housemaster's house for our history lesson. And if the telephone rang in his study, he used to say to one of the boys, go and answer the telephone. And at this time, he's very keen on Anna Mae Wong. Do you remember the actress? And she used to come and have dinner with him. And obviously, he rather fancied her. And the telephone went one day, and he said to the chap, Gilliard, go and answer the telephone. Obviously, thought it was Anna Mae Wong. And the Gilliard came back about two minutes later, and the housemaster said, yes, yes, who was it? And Gilliard said, sorry, sir, Wong number. <laughs> That was Eton. Oxford, I went to, I read history in P.G. Woodhouse. Played cricket about six times a week, which was good fun. And I really achieved one thing there, which I don't think anybody in this room has achieved. I've never met anyone else. I actually scored a try at rugby wearing a Macintosh. Well, I'll tell you how it happened. I was playing for New College against Trinity, and someone tackled me and pulled my trousers off. I went and stood on the touchline. Someone said, you better put this Macintosh on to cover your confusion, which I did. And the ball came down the line, and when it got the left wing, I said, outside, you took the ball. The referee should have blown his whistle because I hadn't got leave to go back on. But he was laughing so much, he went... (laughs) (laughs) I touched down between the posts, so that was good. And then, like so many people at that age, I wasn't sure what career I wanted to follow. So I was lucky, I suppose, in a way. We had a family business, coffee. 
We used to export coffee from Brazil, and I didn't understand a word about coffee. I can confirm there are an awful lot of coffee beans in Brazil, but otherwise I knew nothing about it. And the manager, I don't think, took to me very well. He thought we got me one day. I'd had a late night, arrived about 10 o'clock, and he summoned me to his office. He said, Johnson, he said, you should have been here at 9.30. I said, why, sir, what happened? He didn't like that a bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when, when the war came, I left them and said, I'm sorry, I'm not coming back again. And again, just before the war, we were very lucky because some friends of mine decided with me in about March 1939, war was obviously going to come. Let us try to get into a good regiment. And by a little bit of luck, the fact that a cousin of mine was commanding the 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards at Wellington <laughs> Barracks. <laughs> we went and we used to train. We used to go to the city every evening, bowler hats, pinstripe suits, marched up and down in this hot summer and trained. And in the end, they said, well, you're qualified to be officer cadets. And when the war came in September, this meant we could go straight to Sandhurst to learn how to become officers, which we did. And I've never been able to resist an easy joke. And I tried one out the first fortnight I was there. They used to have a thing called toots, tactical exercise without troops, where they took 20 of you out and they gave you various problems, military problems to solve. And the officer took us up on a high ridge and he turned to me and said, Johnson, he said, your platoon's defending this ridge. 100 yards below, approaching, are six German Tiger tanks. What steps did you take? I said, bloody long ones. (laughs) (laughs) he didn't, think, he didn't think that was very funny. But I was put in the book for it, you know, you get your name taken. I had to do a couple of drills or something. In the end, I passed out from there into the Grenadier Guards. I got in the Grenadiers, and I joined them in um, 1940 at a place called Shaftesbury in Dorset. Now, when you join the Brigade of Guards, it's very strange. You go into the mess, and they cut you dead for a fortnight. You may know 50% of them, and you try and converse with them. No, they turn away. After a fortnight's up, they more or less look at their watch and say, hello, Brown, you here, have a drink, and it's all very matey. Bit stupid, I thought, and it happened to me when I joined up in 1940 at Shaftesbury. But at the same time, a friend of mine was joining up down in Sherburne with the Hampshire Regiment, and his commanding officer treated him completely differently. Very glad to have you with us, want you to get to know people, want people to get to know you. Monday night, we'll have a thrash in the mess. Lots to drink, never did anybody any harm. My friend said, terribly sorry, don't drink. I said, don't worry about that then. He said, on Wednesday night, get a few girls up from the naffy, a bit of slap and tickle in the mess, never did anybody harm. My friend said, terribly sorry, sir, I don't approve that sort of thing. So the commanding officer looked at him a moment and said, excuse me asking, you aren't by any chance a queer? My friend said, certainly not, sir. Commanding officer said, pity you won't enjoy Saturday night either. <laughs> So it's due to the Grenadiers that you had to listen to me, if any of you have, since I joined the BBC in 1946. Because two chaps from the BBC, Winfred Vaughan Thomas and Stuart McPherson, came when we were waiting to go to Normandy to brush up on their war reporting. So I got to know them then, which was a bit of luck. I got out in 1945, November, uh, from the army. I went to a party. I happened to run into them there. Another bit of luck. And they said, we're very short of people at the BBC. They're still in the services. We want someone in outside broadcast. We know you can talk a bit. Come and have a test. I said, I don't want to join the BBC. They said, come on, do it. I said, well, I will, but if I pass it, I'll only be with you for a week or so. Anyhow, they set me up in Oxford Street, gave me a microphone and said, ask passers-by what they think of the butter ration. But if you ask silly questions, you get silly answers. 
But what they said was, well, it wasn't very good, but at least you kept talking. Come and join us for a bit. So I said, I will, but I shan't stay long. And I joined in January 1946, and funnily enough, I was with them still when I retired as a member of the staff in September 1972. So it suited me, if not everybody's had to listen to me. And I remember my first broadcast. I'd only been there about a fortnight when they discovered an unexploded bomb in St James's Park, in the lake there. They drained the lake, and there was this huge great sausage of a German bomb, unexploded. And it was announced they're going to blow it up at 11 o'clock one morning. And my boss said, right... You go down, you do your first broadcast, we'll interrupt the news, describe the blowing up in the bomb. So we went down there with the engineers, we were standing on a little bridge, and the policeman came up and said, what are you doing? I said, we're going to commentate on the blowing up of the bomb. He said, oh, no, you're not here, it's far too dangerous, go in there. And he pointed to the ladies' loo. And so I went in there, stood up on the seat, looked through those loo sort of window things and did the commentary from there. And I always say I came out looking a bit flushed, you know. But <laughs> so that was my very first broadcast. Then I didn't do cricket at all. I went and did theatres. We used to broadcast live from musicals like South Pacific, Annie Get Your Gun, um, Oklahoma, Carousel. And I used to commentate from the box for bits which people couldn't understand. All done live from the theatre. And also every Tuesday I used to go to music halls and broadcast live from there all these marvellous music hall acts. And I'm crazy on the theatre, so you can imagine what a joy that was to me, meeting all the musical comedy stars and the people from Variety. And it wasn't until March, two months later, that a telephone rang. A friend of mine called Ian O'Ewing, with whom I'd played cricket before the war, it rang up and said, help, I'm just out of the Royal Air Force. I'm in charge of sport on television. We've got two test matches against the Indians, one at Lords, one at the Oval. We've got no commentator. I know you play, I know you can talk a bit. Would you like to be the commentator? So on that little bit of luck, I did the television for the next 24 years. So, you know, luck, it, it's, it is unbelievable. And after that, after 24 years, they got browned off with all my old jokes, so they sacked me and I went straight across to radio and I've been on Test Math Special for another 24 years, so, you know, luck <laughs> just on that one telephone call. And I did a lot of television in those days and radio and people often say...